Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the Gates Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm Jonathan Sterwald. The future for school reopenings appear bleaker than ever as the pandemic continues to spread across California. That means more students are likely to be getting instruction via distance learning for a longer period of time. And this week, a prominent public interest law firm filed a lawsuit against California arguing that black and Latino students in particular are being deprived of their constitutional rights because of inadequate distance learning they're getting in many districts. Later in the podcast, we'll be talking with Chancellor Tim White from the California State University in what is likely to be his last interview with EdSource before he steps down at the end of the month. You know, Lewis, no one is satisfied with distance learning, but public counsel says that that shouldn't be an excuse to let the state off the hook from meeting what it says are its constitutional obligations to ensure that low-income Latino and black students get a comparable education as other students. So it filed a lawsuit on behalf of seven black and Latino students and their families from Oakland and Los Angeles. The suit names the State Board of Education, State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurmond, and the California Department of Education as defendants. The lawsuit is charging that the state, and I quote, has abdicated its responsibility by denying students the basic educational equality guaranteed to them by the California Constitution. Data show that more English learners and low-income kids of color are chronically absent and they're struggling with internet and computer connections. The lawsuit says the state's responsible to prevent gaps in student achievement from widening and that it has to do more to make sure that these students don't bear the brunt of the shortcomings of distance learning. We have with us Jessalyn Friley, who is a lead attorney for public counsel in the lawsuit Kayla J. versus the state, including the State Board of Education and the California Department of Education. Kayla J. is one of two eight-year-old twins who attend a third grade in an unnamed elementary school in Oakland. Thanks for joining us today, Jessalyn. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. So why sue the state as opposed to districts and in the middle of a pandemic and a recession? What what isn't the state doing that it should be right now for providing education to California students? Well, John, the state is not fulfilling its very well-established constitutional obligation to make sure that all kids in the state have access to an equal education and equal educational opportunities. In terms of why during the pandemic and during the recession, you know, the issues that we're raising in the complaints, many of them go back way before the pandemic in terms of Black and Latinx students from low-income backgrounds not having access to the same opportunities that other kids have in the state. But the pandemic has really been a breaking point. And at this point, after eight months or so of remote learning, it's come to a point where we know what works in terms of offering high quality remote instruction. And now the state has had a lot of time to step in and make sure that that instruction is being offered for black and brown students, and they haven't done so. So that's why the lawsuit, and that's why now. And what we're really worried about is that once remote learning ends and kids are back in person, that low-income black and brown students will have lost a lot of ground on top of already being behind their peers due to the state's failure to provide them with an equal education. I think everybody recognizes that distance learning is terrible. 
Nobody really chose to do this distance learning. The state says this, the districts say this, everybody says this. Everybody would like to have kids back in school, but we have a pandemic, which as right now is getting even worse. So just give me some specifics of what you think the state should be doing. So the state legislature passed a set of minimum standards for this remote learning school year. So it's not as though they haven't weighed in at all in terms of what should be offered. The problem is that they're not doing anything to enforce those standards. So those they include, for instance, minimum instruction time, a certain number of hours in the day that students are supposed to be in school. And they include that the instruction that's offered is supposed to approximate in-person learning. So just taking those two examples, we have many stories in our complaint about flagrant violations of the minimum instruction times. You know, Kayla J and Kai J, the twins who John mentioned earlier, didn't meet with their teacher more than twice between March and June. As you know, we have a decentralized system of government of, of running schools. There's a thousand school districts, local control, local school boards. Are you saying that the state should be monitoring all thousand school districts to make sure that those schools are providing the necessary minutes? I mean, isn't this local schools? Why aren't you filing suits against individual school districts who really, I mean, they are ultimately responsible? Really, the scope of the problem is larger than individual school districts and the responsibility to make sure that these minimum standards are met lies with the state, not with the districts. And, you know, it's not as though local control means that the state has no role in deciding whether rules are followed, whether the, the standards that are set in many different contexts of education in California are being enacted at the local level. I see that the complaint talks about what are we going to do when we return to school, recognizing that these gaps are widening, therefore that the state needs to come up either with money for summer school or some policy or training for teachers or something, anything specific that you recommend or just that's the that's the ask of the state? Yeah, I mean, that is the ask. I think that the community-based organizations that are, are named in the complaint as plaintiffs have done a phenomenal job of offering summer school and after school programming to supplement what kids missed out on during the pandemic. And I think that that, that could be replicated at scale and that, that type of compensatory programming is a feature of, of many lawsuits in different contexts where the delivery of education has not been adequate for some time. Yeah, speaking of that, I noticed that there were two nonprofit organizations, Oakland Reach and Community Coalition and in South LA are actually co-plaintiffs, which I found odd. Why are they co-plaintiffs? They are organizations that have stepped in and extended their original mandates to fill in the gaps in terms of what the state is providing for education during the pandemic. So, you know, they existed before the pandemic. They provided a lot of, you know, services and parent empowerment to kids but what they've had to do during the pandemic is just off the scale. They've had enormous expense. And because of what the state has failed to do, you know, their original mission and programming was completely thwarted. So they you know, had to step into this completely different role. Well, we had Lakeisha Young on this program who runs the REACH program. Sounds like a fantastic program. But I just want to really clarify that it does seem like what you would be expecting of the state is some massive oversight. I mean, people going out and really checking to make sure districts are doing what they are doing. We know that the 
CDE doesn't have that kind of manpower or person power. So are you envisaging, you know, a massive increase in people going out and really monitoring what districts are doing? I'm just trying to understand how the state would actually do this. Ultimately, the state with either the court or if there were to be a settlement pursuant to an agreement, that would all get hashed out at that point. I think it's not just about rolling out people to monitor, but offering things that can be replicated throughout the state. You know, we've seen in other contexts um, with other agencies, state agencies taking a role in creating like a much more granular than they have so far policy, implementation plan, training videos, things like that. The state is in a position to be offering similar and very high quality services to everyone. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a huge effort to make sure that there's uptake of those types of things. But all of the details are a question for a later date. So you laid out your basic case in a letter to the state board president, Linda Darling-Hammond, and State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman, in a September letter, you laid out your case. And in their response a month later, they said to you, basically, we're doing things. You know, we have this learning continuity plan that we require all districts to fill out very specific questions. They know what they're supposed to do. The legislature laid out things. We provided $5 billion extra dollars in federal funding. I didn't get a sense from the letter that they felt that they had left anything out at this point, that they sort of did what they were supposed to do. Well, with the learning continuity plan specifically, you know, there is no requirement that they be enforced. We definitely don't think that that's enough. And, you know, I don't think anyone is arguing here that the state hasn't done anything, but what they've done has not been equally distributed among the students in California, and it's left these particular students, black and brown low-income students, behind. Um, and what and what they've done has not been enough. And, you know, what we're really not seeing, what we didn't see in that letter, what we haven't seen since, is any type of plan for how to remedy the enormous losses once we are back in an in-person system. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Justin Friley, who is a lead attorney for public counsel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. You know, John, while school districts have been under enormous pressure to open their doors for in-person instruction, it's widely accepted that it's okay for college students to be getting most of their instruction online. Chancellor Tim White, who oversees the 23-campus California State University system, made waves early in the pandemic in announcing that all its colleges would be mostly closed for in-person instruction beginning this fall. He then announced that the whole system would be closed for the entire school year. White stepping down after eight years as chancellor, isn't that right, Lewis? Yes, he'll be succeeded by Joe Castro, who is currently president of Fresno State University. And that's a fairly big deal. As you'll recall, Joe Castro will be the first Latino head of the CSU system. Chancellor White talked with its sources Ashley Smith this week, and she asked him about a notable aspect of White's tenure— the Graduation 2025 Initiative. The initiative has set as a goal for the percentage of students it wants to graduate in four years at 40%. Remarkable that, you know, four out of 10 students graduating in four years is the goal. You'd really think it should be higher, but uh, getting students through CSU in four years is a major challenge. And it also sets at 70%, the percentage of students it wants to graduate in six years. So what are the rates now? 
Well, they've been creeping up, John. The graduation rate last year was 31%. That's nine percentage points short of the 40% goal. And the six-year graduation rate was 62%. That's eight percentage points shy of the 70% goal. So it's progress, isn't it? But uh, there's still a ways to go. That's correct. And Ashley asked him if he thinks CSU will reach its goals by 2025. I'm very pleased by the effort, not only by our faculty and staff, but also by our students uh, to change their approach to how they pursue their college education and carrying full loads whenever possible so they can get through in a shorter amount of time. The fact that when we pivoted to the virtual space this last spring in, in, in March and finished out that semester, we had the highest number of students earning their degrees in, in June of 2021 than we've ever had in the history of the university. We've also had the highest retention rate of first-year students last year who came back as second-year students this year, uh, approaching 86%. We've never been that high before. So even though we've pivoted into the virtual space temporarily during this pandemic, our students, faculty, and staff have really, quite frankly, leaned into this moment to continue this effort uh, on, on our graduation initiative with stunning success. We actually have the largest student body across the 23 campuses uh, uh, this term than we've ever had in the history of the university. So high graduation rates, great retention rates, and uh, the largest student body. So those things all bode well for me going forward. We've been able to invest new resources every year into the graduation initiative from the state appropriation in all cases, with the exception of one where we needed some four or five years ago to raise tuition by $270 in order to fund the graduation initiative. But now the fact that we're having such success, there's a great return on this investment. And so one of the things that we're asking Governor Newsom in his budgeting process, which he'll announce his preliminary budget in January, is to continue this investment in the graduation initiative. It, it creates the seed corn of California's future, and uh, it is not a time to pull back on funding of the CSU. It's actually a time to increase investment in the CSU because the return is so powerful. There's still a significant number of freshmen who drop out, and I think on some campuses, it's around 20%. Uh, I'm thinking of campuses like Cal State East Bay. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have an idea of what more can be done? I think everybody, particularly in the moment we're in now, is looking for connection. <laughs> and uh, so the campuses that have, have done a great job in, in not having summer melt, if, if you will, uh, of their students at any level, is making sure that they reach out to their students during the course of the summer, check on them and, and make sure that they're on schedule to enroll in courses and be back on campus or in the virtual space come the fall. Sometimes students, you know, stop out for all the right reasons. It could be financial. It could be that they choose to transfer to another university or go to a community college for a while. And our goal, of course, is to try and have them earn a CSU degree. But the most important thing for society is that if they do stop out of uh, one of our campuses, that they end up going to community college and then coming back here or somewhere else to get that all-important bachelor's degree. You know, there was a study that was released last week that looks at social mobility across the United States. And this is an independent group that assessed about 1,440 college and university campuses across the United States in terms of social mobility, meaning students who come into the university from a low-income background and a few years after graduating, what their earned income is. 
And of the top 20 universities across the United States, 14 of them are California State University campuses. So we're the, the number one driver in the nation, really, quite frankly, in the world of what our degrees mean. So every time we lose a student, that's an opportunity lost for that person and for their family and community. To me, it's continuing to reach out, to acknowledge, to work with them, to help them re-enroll when they're ready to do so, so they can get that degree and move on to a more productive life. You talked about uh, the budget request that CSU made to the governor's office and uh, you know, Governor Gavin Newsom will be revealing that in January. Wanted to know, though, are, are you a bit worried about the current budget situation? Obviously, there's this additional tax revenue that the state has. But at the last CSU board meeting, you seem to uh, want to temper uh, some of the board members' expectations about what the CSU could get when it comes to investing in the system. And I'm wondering if maybe you have concerns about just what an investment next year looks like or if there will even be one, um, considering that there were cuts this year. Yes, look, I'm a, both an optimist and a realist. <laughs> and the governor's budget is going to have a lot of mouths, if you will, at the trough so I think we will make our case, but there are also other very legitimate, necessary needs in California that will also be making the case. And so at the end of the day, I'm hopeful that we'll have some movement in our budget, but also the economy could collapse again. And some of these one-time dollars that came in over expectations over the last several months could very quickly be used up in a continuing downturn of our economy. We're approaching it at the university as a three-year austere budget. We are now about six months into it, starting in July of 2021 and going for the next three years. The sense I have from my financial people and from the finances that you can see around us is that next fiscal year, the July 2021 to June 2022 year, uh, will be a more difficult financial year than this year. And then starting the year after that, things might start to ease up a little bit. We're not interested in raising tuition. We're not raising it this year. Financial aid is as strong as ever. So students and families who've run into financial difficulty at home can have their financial aid package recalculated. And if there's room for more, be awarded that. So that's how we're going forward. And finally, I would say, you know, we put aside purposefully reserve funds for a variety of reasons, including rainy day. And we've been using some of those reserve funds now uh, during this year to minimize the impact of the budget cut that we received from the governor's office uh, and the legislature this last summer to try and minimize that impact on students and our, on our employees. I know you've had plenty of conversations with incoming chancellor, uh, Joe Castro. What advice would you give him when he takes over? Well, I think it's really sort of stay the course, but don't stay the same. Joe Castro is going to be a fabulous chancellor for the California State University to continue the effort on graduation initiative to help improve the investment, not only from the state of California, but also from businesses and from private philanthropy into this enterprise. I also think that some of the things that we're learning and continue to learn as we go through the pandemic, innovations that actually make it better for students, those are things that, that they can put into place as well. There's a very bright future for CSU under Joe Castro's leadership. That was Ed Source reporter Ashley Smith talking with outgoing CSU Chancellor Tim White. John, before we leave, uh, we should mention what's a milestone of sorts. The Newsom administration issued 
the master plan for early learning and care. Master plan. You know, the last time California had a master plan for education was the famous master plan for higher education in 1960. So, Why did the governor feel there was a need for one focusing on early ed? Well, certainly since the Master Plan for Higher Education was issued, that was 60 years ago now, there's now widespread recognition that early education is arguably as important, if not more important, than the higher ed side of things. Because if students don't get that early foundation, it could really set them back, not only throughout their education careers, but throughout their entire lives. And so looking at the different systems of education in California, the early end of things is the most fragmented. The quality varies tremendously. And of course, a lot of it is privately run and some of it is subsidized by the state. Some programs are run by school districts. So there's really a lack of coordination and there really is a need to try to bring some order to this system so it is more effective. Well, the governor took office making early education a real priority, and he started in the his first budget and then great ambitions in the second budget, too. But then, of course, now we have COVID. So it's important to lay out a master plan, which is at least it sets the commitment, it puts the markers in the road and says, this is what we really are going to do. It's not going to, you know, we're not going to just go year by year. And I think that's what it does, even though we all know that funding is going to be tight, at least for the next couple of years. And I think what's impressive is that actually work proceeded on this master plan during the pandemic. It was pretty much behind the scenes, under the radar. So some kudos to the folks who worked on this and actually got this plan out during a time of great crisis. Lewis, that's a good topic for our coming week. Yes, we'll really look at that in detail next week because there are some very interesting ideas in the report. And, you know, the big challenge, of course, is taking a report that has promise and actually turning it into something that really has an impact. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to Ed Source's annual News Match campaign. Just go to our website. You'll find the little red heart on the top right-hand corner. Click on that. Really easy to make a donation. And we really count on listeners like you to keep us going and to subsidize this podcast. And there's also an opportunity for contributors to make a comment. And if you enjoy this podcast, and that's one of the reasons you feel motivated to give, please uh, give us a shout out. We'd appreciate it. On that note, I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwall. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm